0: I'm hoping that you all have great plans for uh, the holidays. I know I, I do. I'm going to be at home. I'll be here uh, Tuesday night, 3 p.m., 5 p.m. 7. Hope you'll join us for one of our candlelight services. And then uh, our whole family, uh, the kids and grandkids, and there's 12 stockings hung by the mantle, which is like, man, 40 years ago there were two when my wife and I got married and now there's 12. What happened? I don't know, but it's good. It's a blessing. So uh, may you find joy in this season as well. Please join me in prayer. We're looking at paradoxes this morning, very important during this particular week when you'll be with family and such, so please join me. Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning and as we anticipate this week that is unusual in the, in the calendar of our year, our prayer is that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to us today, prepare us to open our eyes that we might receive all that you have to give us this week, and that we might also give by being the presence of Christ to to those around us. So to that end, we invite you to teach us now through your scriptures, and we'll thank you for that. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We are talking about paradoxes this morning in Luke chapter 5 for a reason that will become apparent in a moment. A paradox by definition is, and I'm quoting now, a seemingly self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove ultimately to to be true. So it's something on the surface you go, no, this can't be. And when you look at it, you go, oh, maybe it can actually be. So I thought of some paradoxes just to set us up a rich English major, that's a paradox, right? (laughs) Who's heard of that? A wise fool, an ancient infant, and my favorite of all of them, a mariner championship. (laughs) I mean, may it prove, now listen, that's a compliment. May it prove to be a paradox, right? Where we will, a year from now, go, who would have ever thought... And yet it happened. That's what a paradox is, right? So that worked perfectly as an illustration because you really identify with it. So the Advent theme of with is about celebrating the reality, particularly this week, that God is with us. Uh, The deep hope that our faith offers is this reality of companionship with Christ in a fallen world. But what does that look like in 2020? 2020? Uh, how, and the kind of the question I ask as I prepared this, uh, for this time together this morning is how often do I miss companionship with Christ because though Jesus is showing up, he's not showing up in the way that I was anticipating. And so Jesus is here, but I don't see Jesus because I'm looking for Jesus in a different context, different setting, Jesus blows up all of our preconceptions if we will allow Jesus to do so. And that's what today's text is all about. And the text this morning that was read is clear enough. There's a man, he's paralyzed and he's brought to Jesus by some friends. But they can't get in the house because at this moment in Jesus' ministry his popularity is rising pretty dramatically and the house is filled with people. Everybody wants to be with Jesus. So they can't get in. So these guys climb up on the roof and lower him through the roof. And when you read the text, you understand that they had to destroy the roof in order to do this. So here's some guys that are on the roof of ostensibly a stranger's house, and they take the tiles off the roof, and they lower this guy down in and drop him right in front of Jesus in, in this house. And then Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven, which is weird. Weird as we'll see in a minute. Uh, And then, uh, as a result of his saying that, the religious leaders, kind of the seminarians, get mad because they know that humans can't forgive sins. And so Jesus reads their mind, and he says, of course, yeah, humans can't forgive sins, and paralyzed guys can't walk either. So get up and walk, and then the guy walks. And as a result of this, the people in the story who appeared to be spiritually in the know and wise are revealed to be fools. And the people who had no social protocol at all, I mean they destroyed a guy's roof to drop these people in. Uh, they're revealed as having genuine faith. And then here's the concluding statement in Luke 5. Amazement sees them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying... We've seen extraordinary things or, depending on your translation, remarkable things or amazing things. But whatever your translation, the Greek word is paradoxa. In other words, here's what they're saying. We've seen paradoxes today. And this is really worth paying attention to in this moment of history for reasons that I think will become apparent as we go through the text together. But Here's the deal. If I'm not willing to have my world kind of invaded by Jesus in unanticipated ways, I'm expecting Jesus to come here and he shows up over here. If I'm not willing to, uh, to allow these kind of paradoxes, I think, oh no, Jesus could never show up that way, then I'm going to miss Jesus in my life today. I mean, Christ came, and Christ is still showing up today, but very often we don't see Christ because we have this tiny little window through which we think Christ can appear and Christ is actually showing up through many other windows and doors, and we, we just don't see it. So we want to look at three paradoxes in this. There's more than three, but we're going to look at three paradoxes in the text. In hopes that this week, my real prayer for you is that this week you would see Christ. Like at the dining room table around Christmas time, and with friends, and with neighbors, and when you go shopping... In every setting, to be open to receiving what Christ has to give you. So, first paradise we want to see. Here's an individual who's healed by community. That's in verse 18. What does it say? It says, some men were carrying a man on a bed who was paralyzed. So what's interesting in this story at the outset is to consider kind of the passive role of the paralyzed guy. We don't know much about this guy, but we know this. He can't get to Jesus on his own. It's impossible. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. And we don't even know if he wants to. He has to be carried to Jesus because he's paralyzed. And then once in proximity to Jesus, he can't get close enough to get an audience with Jesus. He's stuck outside. So his friends lift him up on the roof and lower him through it. And if you just think about that, that's ridiculous, right? (laughs) Right? Like, uh, do they have a litter? You know, like if you're in search and rescue, do they have a, they have a like, what, what do they have to lift him? And lifting a guy is not easy. You can pull a guy. You can drop a guy. You can, you can use Jumars and get a guy up. But just lifting a guy is, I mean, that's a lot of trouble. And then they have to destroy the roof. Because literally the phrase "down through the tiles" indicates that they're tossing tiles. So here's somebody's house, and then in the middle of Jesus doing this, like imagine you hear a saw, and then you know somebody comes rappelling down with a mat. (coughs) It's insane. And when Jesus sees the guy, he doesn't panic and kind of judge the guys for destroying this man's property. But he looks at the guy who has done nothing. And he says to that guy, your sins are forgiven. Are you kidding me? Uh, This story is entirely contrary to American Christianity. And here's why. Like the the very way that we phrase encountering Christ, or or have for 50 years, is this. Hey, it's very important, Brian, that you receive Christ as your what? What? What do we say? Personal savior. And then we, we talk, this is the other thing we say. Oh, religion? Don't talk to me about religion. That's a private thing. Like we can talk, we'll talk about politics. We'll talk about impeachment. We'll talk about the Seahawks. We'll talk about the 49ers. We'll talk about the Mariners. Uh, we'll talk about traffic. We'll talk about Amazon. But religion, sex and money, nope, big wall. It's private. It's personal, personal. Right? But in this case, <laughs> This guy's faith is not entirely his own. We think, hey, we sought God, we discovered our need, we confessed our sins, we declared our our solidarity with Christ, we came forward alone, we were baptized alone, we were born alone, we're going to die alone. But in this story, the only thing you know for certain is that this guy knows that he's paralyzed. That's all you know. He can't seek Jesus on his own. We're not even certain he wants to seek Jesus, but his friends... Want to take him to Jesus for healing. We know that, and they do. And when they can't get in the house, they won't take no for an answer. In other words, note this story. His friends are deeply involved in the healing process. And yet, though his friends are involved in the process, Jesus doesn't say anything to the friends in the story. He only says to the guy, Your sins are forgiven. The friends have faith, the friends are involved, his sins are forgiven. It's a pretty interesting story uh, because uh, I don't want to get in the weeds of this theologically because we'll start arguing here in the pews, so we're not going to do that. But i am going to say this is an observation that I think is absolutely true. Healing and transformation happen in community. Like, write it down because that's so important. The reason it's important is because individualism is an idol in our culture, as we're going to see in just a minute here. You don't heal yourself. You don't save yourself. You don't equip yourself. You don't educate yourself. You don't correct yourself, you were never intended to. So this paradox creates a head-on collision with the idol of individualism that is in our American culture. Because individualism says what? Hey, it all depends on you. And individualism basically says, doesn't matter where you are, this is like we call it the American dream, doesn't matter where you are, if you work hard, get an education, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can what? You can thrive. That's America. I mean, people left Europe to come and build, what, kind of their own life, right? And then, by the way, if individualism is more prevalent in the United States than Europe, and it is because it's in our DNA as, like, pioneers, that individualism uh, becomes a greater and greater force the further west you travel in the United States right? So that some of you have lived in other places, you know this, you come here, you've heard about the Seattle, you know, freeze, Seattle chill, we're super friendly, but we don't really mean anything that we're saying, right? Like, if I say to you, hey, let's have coffee sometime, what I mean is, if I never see you again ever, it'll be fine with me. (laughs) Like, Like, there's a lot of disingenuous friendliness in this kind of very far west part of the world that is kind of rugged individualism, right? And individualism says, hey, you can do anything if, like, if you just knock it out of the park yourself. Well, uh, the Globe and Mail, which is like the Canadian uh, version of the New York Times, basically, they just published an article this last week, and I'm just quoting a part of it. It says, put down your self-help books... Sociologists have finally discovered, and as if science is the end-all, but here, here we go. Sociologists have discovered resilience and transformation are never a do-it-yourself endeavor. And so as uh, this study was done of people dealing with, uh, you know, addiction, unemployment, financial setbacks, health crises, uh, they found a direct correlation in people's ability to move, whether it's losing weight, running a marathon, getting a job, dealing with bankruptcy, overcoming addiction, there's a correlation between success and community. In other words, you try and do it alone, you often you fail. But if there's a community surrounding you, you often succeed. So resilience depends more on, this, the article says, depends more on what we receive from others than what we have within us in other words, the life for which you're created is a life in community. That is interesting because if you go back in, in like ancient history, you understand that hunter-gatherers and tribal cultures understood this profoundly. And it wasn't even a value. It was so ubiquitous. It was such a, it was such a profoundly held value that it, it wasn't even declared as a value. I mean, you just didn't do anything else. In fact... Uh, Uh, our tribal culture ancestors didn't have jails for criminals, Uh, the punishment for a criminal was isolation. Like you you were cut off from access from your tribe for a period of time, or if it was a real serious crime, permanently, which was a death sentence essentially, right? And, And so what was then a sentence, a punishment, isolation, has now become a trend. Like Seattle is one of the... Uh, the, Seattle, New York, and San Francisco are the three cities with the highest population of uh, single-occupied households. Though that's changing in the moment because the rent in Seattle is going up so high that out of necessity, people are starting to move into, people are like this, I don't like you, but, you know, 500 is less than 800, so <laughs> here we go, <laughs> move in. Uh, uh, so, but, but the ideal for, for 35 million Americans, the, the ideal, the chosen ideal... Is living alone. This is like, listen, this is the, I'm not talking about people who are now like widows, widowers, uh, divorced, people who don't want to live alone and are forced to. I'm talking about people who are choosing to live alone. It, it is often the perfect cocktail of wealth, virtual reality, social media, and rugged individualism that creates this world. And as the number of people who are choosing to live alone has risen in our culture, at the same level of increase are rates of suicide, depression, homelessness, and anxiety. Now, I'm not purporting causation here, but I'm saying it is interesting that as we choose isolation, we also begin to see more and more the social uh, malaise of our time, uh, suicide, depression, homelessness, and anxiety in proportion, directly proportion to isolation. No surprise. Why? Because listen, individualism and isolation are not normal. It may be a seasonal thing for you, but it's not normal. Every person for themselves is not normal. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps is not normal. Isolation is not normal. C.S. Lewis version of Hell" in "The Great Divorce" is a world in which everyone gets whatever they want on demand, but every time I get what I want, the distance between me and the, the closest person grows. Does that make sense? So, like, I get what I want, but in getting what I want, I sacrifice community, and this kind of plays out now in our in our culture. Actually, like uh, back in the day, pre uh, you know cell phone and, and media, uh, even if you watched a movies of a family, at least you watched the movies a family. Now there's a movie on. And I'm convinced half the time, none of us are watching the movie. Because as soon as, if I've seen the movie, or if I don't like the movie, it's, not, it's rude to leave, but apparently it's not rude to do this, right? And like, okay, yeah, yeah, oh, the movie's on, but I'm not paying attention. And we're, we're living in these kind of isolated bubbles. Does this make sense? So this is the, this is the culture in which we find ourselves, and I'm just going to suggest to you it was unnormal. And here's why I say it's unnormal. When you look at the Bible, the kingdom of God is exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite. Isaiah 2, the kingdom of God, every tribe and every nation joining hands. People who are profoundly different culturally, joining hands, ascending the mountain of God because one thing draws them all together it's their commitment to their new king, Messiah, who, by the way, is Jesus. None of them are there because they made a life for themselves, they are jo- they're, they're called into a family. And then as a family, they're, they're seeking together the kingdom of God. And when you go to Isaiah 25 or so, there's this vast feast, best wine, best cheese, aged meat, amazing, and people from every tribe, every nation, every disease healed. But, but it's a table. It's Babette's Feast, if you know the movie. It's this remarkable gathering of people who share little in common other than this kind of love that they have for one another because this love for one another is predicated on the one thing they share, love for Christ. You're made for that. And you, By the way, you cannot get that by putting on headphones and listening to me as you run the lake. You just can't. It's good to do that, I suppose, if you need it for some reason, like to keep your pace, or if you need, like, insomnia help, it's perfect. That's what I do when I can't sleep. Just listen to myself yabber on. It's fine. (laughs) But church is not that. We're a community. And, and, you know, when this ends and there's coffee, that ought to be populated with you. Because here's why. Could you come up? I know you read the scripture, but could you come up again? Here's what happens when we're in proximity. When I know you, you know me, Christ in me, this is happening at a cosmic level, Christ in me is now... Rating out, and you're able to receive. And then Christ in you is rating out, and I'm able to receive. But when an idol of individualism enters into our culture, it's like there's this wall here, and now Christ is coming out, but you're not able to receive. And Christ is coming out, and be, you're not receiving, and, you can't, and you're giving, but I'm not receiving because we, we have made an idol out of individualism. Give a hand. It's very brave to come up. Thank you. All through the Bible, this, you see it all through the Bible, Nobody does anything alone. When, when Israel's fighting this battle in Exodus 17, Moses holds up his arms, and then he gets tired, and so, so these guys come, and they keep his arms held up, and when his arms are up, the soldiers win their battle. When his arms go down, they lose. His arms get tired. The soldiers put him back up. They win again. There's soldiers fighting. There's Moses with the arms. There's the guys holding the arms. Every, who's Like, who won the war? Everybody. Take Moses out of the equation. Take the soldier out of the equation. Take the arm help out of the equation. And uh, the battle goes to the other team. Like, we're, we're in this together. So find your local tribe and nurture it. I can't say it strongly enough. It's countercultural. in a, in a, in a world where individuals are an idol. Find your local tribe nurture it. Join a small group. Recognize that your faith is never just your faith. Be the guy carrying other people to Jesus. Um, there's this thing that's popular among millennials, I think, and younger people that say, "What's your spirit animal?" Have you heard this before? Now, I don't. I'm an agnostic about spirit animals. I don't know theologically what I think of spirit animals. <laughs> but if you if you go to my little bungalow here that I rent from the church, you'll see above the um, above the sofa a pic, like a picture of a wolf. I love wolves. And part of what I love about wolves is uh, they have a pack, but they're also, they like to get off on their own sometimes. And I like to get off on my own. But I, you know, as I was thinking about this, I'm only standing here today because a lot of people that none of you know. When I was studying architecture, my friend Jim convinced me to play piano for a Bible study. His exhortation and encouragement changed my life. And by the way, bummed me out of depression. Um, when I was in seminary, I did my first sermon, and then the guy uh, teaching the class, he came over and said, "Richard, God' has given you a gift of preaching." And I, if I could give you one thing, it would be to say to you, f- "Develop that gift." And I did, listening to him. My, I was here a year and wanted to quit after a year, because the church had grown from 300 to 200 in a, in a year. <laughs> so I was super discouraged. And then there there were two guys, Bob Niskin and Jim McClurg, who are part of Bethany still to this day. They attend the North Campus, and they locked me in a room and talked me off the ledge. I'm still here. This building. There was a meeting at Starbucks, and the cost was escalating because the permit was delayed, and we'd raised our goal amount of money, but the building was going to cost more than the goal that we raised. And so I called a meeting with the chairman of the board and the chairman of the building committee. And I said, we can't do this, it's impossible. We don't have the money. And this guy, the chairman of the board, Doug Wynn. These, are the, these guys literally held my arms up, because they were, Doug, I'll never forget, in Starbucks, a quiet little pounds on the table. You're the leader, God has given us this. This is the time, we have to do it now. If we don't do it now, we'll never do it. Lead, Richard, lead. <laughs> okay, I'll lead. But I'm just, I just, I, sh- I share all that with you to say, look, all of us are who we are because other people lifted us up. Right? So get in community. Develop relationships. And be those guys who take somebody on the mat and take them to Jesus. That's what life's all about. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <coughs> Second... Um, Paradox. Here's a human with divine powers. When the guy's lowered through the roof, it says that Jesus saw their faith and he responded to the guy by saying, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders then came to an immediate conclusion that this guy's speaking heresy. And here's why they came to that conclusion. Psalm 32, five says that God alone can forgive sins. Now, these guys had in their mind uh, who Messiah would be and there were debates within religious leaders, and there were many already self-proclaimed messiahs in the first century in the Roman Empire, for the Jews, the self-proclaimed messiahs. And so the debates were like, he'll be a military leader, he'll be a powerful teacher, he'll be a political leader. But, but uh, they knew this because they knew their Bibles, they knew the Messiah would never violate the law, and Jesus had already been seen healing people on the Sabbath. They knew that the Messiah would be, uh, quote-unquote, pure, and they knew that Jesus, I mean, they'd already complained, Mark chapter 2, that Jesus hang out with prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, and, and, and Roman soldiers. So they, they already knew that uh, this guy wasn't uh, God. They knew that because he's, he's violated the law and he's hung out with impure people. And now he's forgiving sin, pretending to be God. So then they they come to actually a very logical conclusion. Since Jesus is human, he's not God. And since he's not God, he can't forgive sins. And since he's forgiving sins, heresy, done. It's perfect logic if he's not God. But the, the reason they believe that he's not God is because they knew their Bibles so well. But what they knew so well in their Bibles wasn't their Bible, but their interpretation of the Bible. Do you understand? So they, they thought that uh, uh, the Sabbath meant it was illegal to heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but that, that was their understanding. That their interpretation of Sabbath excluded Jesus from Messiahship. Their interpretation of purity excluded Jesus from discipleship. So they've already decided that this man is not Messiah, and that's the problem. Messiah is standing in front of them, and they're looking beyond him for Messiah. In other words, they miss Jesus because their understanding of who Jesus would be is different than who Jesus is. And I'm just going to say to you, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that this is exactly our evangelical understanding of Jesus as well. Like, we have a tiny window, whatever is our particular interpretation of Jesus... And then Jesus, Jesus is still showing up. Yes, in the text, absolutely. The, the reference point, uh, the paradigm, the lens, I get that. But hear me, Jesus is showing up all the time in our world through the least of these and through people with whom we have profound differences. And this is the problem. If my window is tiny, then I'm like this. yeah, yeah. I can't receive anything you say because you're a gun owner or because you're a Republican or because you're a Democrat or because you have your view on the impeachment or because you listen to Fox News or because you listen to MSNBC or because you thought that the article in Christianity Day was a good article, not a bad article, or a bad article, not a good article, or because you're an environmentalist or, or because you're a gay couple or because you're Kanye, like I can't listen to you. Oh, no, listen. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, this is my words, don't throw cold water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you realize that the people who'd been in contact with the real Jesus heard the truth from Jesus, but they didn't receive that truth because they were blind. Because they didn't believe that Roman soldiers, or somebody who had five failed marriages, or tax collectors, or uneducated people, or people with leprosy, had anything to teach them. So their mentality was, and we hear this all—we do this all the time today. Consider the source. Like you, you get a news report now. You don't, you don't even care what is the news. The first thing you look at is where did this come from. And for somebody in the room, if it came from. Fox, you're like this, done. If it came from the left, done. If it came from a Muslim, done. If it came from a gay couple, done. If it came from a homeless person, done. If it came from an old man with dementia, done. I'm here to say to you, Christ speaks all over the place. And so we got to open up our window and allow ourselves to be chastened, encouraged, rebuked, taught, by Jesus, wherever he shows up. Don't consider the source. Consider the validity of the claim. Huge difference. The best commentary on Genesis is written by uh, uh, a Jew who doesn't follow Jesus. Casuto. Best Genesis commentary. Best commentary, in my opinion, on how the idols of consumerism are destroying the life God has created us to enjoy comes from a new book I'm reading called Climate, A New Story, which says... We have a scarcity of time, scarcity of beauty, scarcity of intimacy, scarcity of real connection to community and nature, thus deprived. We're always hungry for something new, but no amount of money or possession or status or cars or social media likes or increase in the square footage or value of our home can ever meet these profound, deep, unfulfilled needs. The whole system is broken. I mean, that's Ecclesiastes, but it came out of this book, Climate A New Story. This guy's solutions terrible, but his but his his understanding of the problem profoundly accurate. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, don't just shoot people because you don't agree with them wholeheartedly. Christ is showing up all over the place, but if our criteria is the same as those religious leaders had, does what we're hearing conform to our presuppositions? Then we're going to miss Jesus. Their presuppositions were, Messiah is going to bring political deliverance. Messiah is going to love Jews and despise Samaritans. Our presuppositions today often, Messiah is going to preserve our family values. Messiah is going to vote the way we vote. Messiah is going to like who we like. Messiah is going to preserve democracy and consumerism and nationalism and individualism. Um, no, 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 and no, not true. Here's the criteria. This is what you know from the scriptures. Messiah will bring hope and healing to people. That's what we know. So if this guy named Jesus happens to be bringing hope and healing, well, then let's keep listening. When John the Baptist had questions about whether Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus didn't send him a Bible study booklet with prophecies in Isaiah proving that he's Messiah, Jesus said to the disciples to go back and say to John in prison, hey, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are cared for, boom, I'm the guy. In other words, look, look what's happening. You can kind of wear the Jesus t-shirt and completely miss Jesus. Just ask the deacons who are also clan members or spouse abusers or secret addicts or who have, in spite of the T-shirt and doctrinal purity tests, a total disregard for the poor. But when people are pointing to community or healing or generosity or hope or justice, whoever is pointing that way is pointing to Messiah, regardless of whether they wear the T-shirt or not. Look for truth and receive it wherever you find it. And let it shape you. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. So then finally, the last paradox, kind of we see at the end of the story that the outsiders are actually in and the insiders are out. Because when the story's finished, the religious leaders are exposed as being people who missed the point. While the guys presumably with no Christian education are the ones who were revealed as true disciples. And this happens over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus switches the price tags so that insiders are exposed as frauds and outsiders are revealed as having true faith. And it's super annoying to all the uh, religious people, right? I mean, when Jesus hang out, remember, he goes out of his way to engage conversation with this woman at the well who is A, a woman, B, a Samaritan, who the Jews didn't like, and C, uh, a participant in five failed marriages, and D, living with a guy not her husband. And... Jesus like he's spending time with her and the disciples go what what are you doing? And Jesus says, "Well, I I'm here to share who I am with everyone." And she becomes the first evangelist in the Bible. And I mean, would she even be welcome here? First evangelist. Woman caught in adultery. Deep lover of Jesus. Luke 7, a Gentile Roman soldier asks you to heal his slave, and Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, I haven't seen this much, as much faith as this guy has, I haven't seen in all of Israel. That would be annoying if you were a part of Israel, to hear that, right? And by the way, he's a soldier. So if you're a pacifist, deal with it. Jesus loves soldiers too, apparently. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is a party to which everyone's invited. But then, when you read the story, Luke 14, he says, everyone's invited, but a lot of people who are invited are going to make excuses. and say, yeah, I'd like to come, but, you know, I just bought a cow and I got to check it out. I just bought some land. I just got married. Someday, but not now. The reality is, all those people who don't come to God's kingdom have their own kingdom that they actually like better. So then Jesus throws the doors open, and the people who actually show up at the party are people you would never anticipate to be at the party. But those who come to the party must reshuffle their priorities, because if you're coming to this party, you've got a new king, and the king is not you anymore, it's Jesus. And that means new relationship with money, <clears throat> uh, with your enemies. That means your politics is different, your, your sexuality is different, your relationship with the earth is different. You want to wear the t-shirt, fine, but if you want to be part of the kingdom, everything changes for you. So the gates were thrown open, and then the kingdom is soon populated with Samaritans and Romans and Republicans and Democrats and soldiers and pacifists and rich and poor and lepers and CrossFit trainers and everybody's there. (laughs) But the one thing that draws them all together, they all believe this, Jesus is the greatest hope for the world. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on this. Christ is the hope. These candles, it's because Christ has come. And because Christ has come, history's headed in a different direction. And we want to be part of that story, and we want to bring people to Jesus the way these guys did. And we don't have to agree on everything to do that. Last week, uh, I remind you, we come to Crossroads all the time. This is a Crossroads because you're going to go off into, into the week and do Christmas stuff. And my prayer and hope for you and for me is that I will see Jesus this week in all kinds of places. But if I want a kingdom where the rich are rich, the strong are strong, the first are first, the kings are powerful and rule by force, then I can wear the t-shirt that says Jesus on it, but I'm not really at the party. If I'm going to be at the party, at this party, the poor are rich. The sick are strong. The weak are healed. The last are first. And the king is a baby who changes the world by dying on a cross. I think many people endure the holidays. If you've seen Christmas Vacation, you know when the, like, the doorbell rings and it gets lower and lower and lower. This kind of doom, families descending on you. And you just can't wait until you get back to kind of normal life where nobody's bugging you and you can watch whatever you want on TV and there's no video games playing with your kids, blah, 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 blah. Uh, no. When the doorbell rings, you know who's coming in the door? Jesus, that's who. Jesus in your person who voted differently than you sitting at the dinner table. Jesus in the person with a different view of sexual ethics than you have. Jesus in the rich man, Jesus in the poor man. Jesus in the checkout person at Fred Meyer, Tuesday at four, because you forgot stocking stuffers. Are you paying attention? Because ultimately that's what we're doing here is we're trying to bring one another to Jesus. But for that to happen, we need eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes this week? It's a a week in which it's really easy to be blind. Where though we enjoy a lot of the food and a lot of the company, we may secretly harbor also just desires to skip it and get on to January 2nd. Forgive us. This week, you're showing up at our parties, and may they be your parties, and may we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you, the Spirit, are saying through those that we love, through those that are strangers, through those that annoy us. May we see you and respond and be changed. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.